Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Rian Founder. In this episode, we have Jason Free joining us. Jason is the co-founder and CEO of 37 Signals. 37 Signals are the creators of Basecamp and Hey.com, which are both leaders in the specific industries. And Jason actually secured Jason and his team actually secured funding for Basecamp from Jeff Bezos. That's a pretty big deal and pretty good achievement. which was added to the track record. Jason has been working on this incredible company for well over 20 years now and what separates 37 signals from every other company out there is that they have built this uh, company and they have built these companies in an unconventional way according to the societal standards. And even though they followed an unconventional way they built one of the most popular project management tools out there Basecamp and they even built one of the best email services out there hey.com which they launched recently apart from building incredible companies here is jason is also uh, the author of the popular book rework which emphasizes a lot on their business practices in this episode we talk about how jason builds a profitable business and maintaining sanity while building company and so much more This episode provides an incredible insight on the basic fundamentals of business that have been lost uh, due to people making it so complicated to uh, in order to build a company. But Jason has built 37 signals while keeping in mind these basic fundamentals. This is an incredible episode. You'll get to learn a lot from this one. Do listen to it till the very end. Thank you. So hey Jason, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm absolutely fine. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and yeah, so I want to kick this interview off by asking a question that I think I saw in an interview where you mentioned this that you had a Macintosh SE when you were a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you learned how to design on that, but did the product itself have any impact on you creating your own products when you grew up? Yeah, I think it it must have. Um you know, what like a lot of things, you don't really know how they influence you in the moment, but looking back, it's easier to tell, I think. And the fact that um on the Mac everything just looked good, everything looked right. Um it made me like it set the bar for me since I was working on this device that looked good and looked right and and was clear. and thoughtful and well organized. I think it probably yeah, set the bar for me. Like that's what my stuff should be like and look like and act like and work like. So again, I don't know in the moment if it did, but I'm pretty sure that it did. Um I I think I think it's 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 uh it's similar to um um anything in any situation where you're around somebody who is smarter and better and more creative than you, you know, they're going to rub off on you as well if you're open to that. and i think that's what ended up happening uh, with with the back for me so has been this one person who is most smart and more creative than you by self you alone oh well there's been a lot of people that i i look up to and admire um everyone from my business partner to uh people i've never met um but but look at from afar um i think someone who i i've always liked um there was this this guy um called um Ricardo Semler 
um, who wrote this book called Maverick many, many years ago, I think maybe more than 20 years ago now, um, about how he ran this company in Brazil and how it was very different than the rest. And that was really inspiring. I, I hadn't met him. I eventually did meet him. I did a podcast or something with him, an interview, but that was, you know, 15 years or whatever after I had read his book. Um, I looked up to him. Um, I looked up to, I look up to all sorts of artists and architects and creative, creative people and, and small business owners that I know who work down the street. You know, I, you can take something from everybody and be influenced by anybody. Um, so, um, I, I think that's one of the things to keep in mind is that while everyone seems to be seeking a mentor, they can maybe talk to, um, you can learn a lot of, from people who don't know who you are and you'll never reach, but you can study them and learn from them. And, and I think that's, uh, a good thing to be open to. And by the way, this is not just a person always, but any individual situation that you are open to could be interesting. Um, you know, the, the way, um, you know, you, you meet with a gardener and they talk about a flower, you know, like, oh, and thought about flowers like that before, you know, it could just be a, a one minute interaction and, and that can inspire you and, and leave an impression on you or make an impression on you. I, I go off topic a little bit, but, uh, so how do you, find mentors and make mentors out of the people you look up. I think the, um, the easiest way is not to ask anything of them. I think it's hard to ask something of someone else when they're busy and occupied and whatever. And then it can be discouraging when they say, I, you know, I'd love to help, but I don't have the time because that is the case in most cases. So I, I think you should make it more of a one-way street, which is, studying somebody, paying attention to their decisions, decision-making, the things they say, the things they, they demonstrate, uh, and, and have hundreds of mentors, you know, that, that you never meet and never know and never have to ask a thing of. Um, I think this is just about, um, keeping an open mind and having a, um, um, a curious, um, I would say having a curious streak and, and letting that define you. Um, and, and just go, I can learn something or be exposed to something or find something in every situation, in every moment. I, that's the best way. Cause I, I again, I, I know, I know many people who are just trying to reach this one person. They think if this one person is their mentor, it's going to change everything. Uh, maybe that happens. I don't know. Um, but surely if you know this one person well enough to think that they could change everything for you, certainly you've already absorbed some of the things that they've said or that they, they, they've done. And maybe you can just spend more time absorbing more of that from afar versus trying to convince them to to spend time personally with you. I'm in the seek. Yeah, none from us. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, we all have from time to time, there's, you know, something you're like, if I just had this, or if I just knew this person, or if I just did that, everything would change. And I guess sometimes that can be the case, but oftentimes it's 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 not. And we, we, we pin our hopes on a situation that doesn't happen, or when it happens, it's not what we expected. Um, uh, so I would just absorb as much as you can from as many people as you can and then find your own way. And I think the other thing is you can you can reach out to people occasionally and ask them a question. And I think most people are pretty reasonable and they'll and they'll be happy to answer you without having to commit to being a mentor or something like that, right? It's more of a mindset for you. Like you're saying, I think I can learn from this person. Well, they don't need to commit back to you. You just need to make the commitment to learn. I think that's that's the key. Most people like the main reason I think they get mentors is they get someone who is backing them up, which helps them in their marketing or media process, something like that. Mm -hmm. 
But I think it's more of that apart from the learning part. Because if a person is popular, you can learn from them in any way possible. Yeah, and if not, you probably didn't know who they were in the first place. So, you yeah, know, exactly. yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, we went off topic, but yeah. No, it's good. Bye. Sure. So, you started Basecamp uh, as a design agency. Uh, That's right. And and so, why did you pivot from a design agency to what did yeah, to becoming a, a software company, um, um, we liked it more. Frankly, I mean, we 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 built Basecamp for ourselves, and then we started using it with our customers, our clients, web design clients, and and it was working really well. And they said they wanted to use it, and we're like, no, oh, maybe there's something here. Like maybe there's a product here. This this seems like a, a thing other people could use too. And uh, so we 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 put that on the market, and it turned out that about a year, year and a half or so, in that range of time. It was doing better, generating more revenue for us than our web design business. Um, we liked it a whole lot more, and it just became natural at that point to make that decision. Um, we eliminated the risk by waiting to see if it was going to do anything. We didn't drop everything to build this and then cross our fingers hoping it was going to work. We we didn't have to cross any fingers because we just built it on the side, and um, it turned out to do well. So we're like, let's do that instead. So it wasn't this big plan. There's no plan. Um, there was just uh, an idea and we pursued it. And then it turned out to be the idea we wanted to keep pursuing. And so that's what we've been doing ever since. We've made a bunch of other products as well, but that's how we shifted into being a product company. So what was the toughest part in the pivot? Or was, the, was there anything tough? Um, <clears throat> tough not not really frankly uh, I know this is maybe an unusual story but but it, it wasn't it wasn't tough um, and it wasn't tough because we didn't allow it to be um, and what I mean by that is that we did not pin our future hopes dreams and desires on the thing if you do that you're really setting yourself up for a lot of pressure and a lot of toughness <laughs> um, if you don't and you say we're just gonna make this thing and see what happens and we're gonna do it on the side and spend 20% of our time on it instead of 100% if it happens, it's a treat. It's a bonus. There's not pressure. Um, and I think that this is the thing I, I'm constantly um, surprised by in business. The amount of pressure people put on themselves in certain situations. Certainly there's pressure in situations that's, that's uh, external and you can't do anything about. But there's a lot of self-imposed unnecessary pressure and, and expectation and prediction that people have to try to live up to. And they put it on themselves, and that is unnecessary, I think. Um, so, I think what you want to try to do is find something that works, and that's the hard thing initially. From there, maintain that thing that works. That's what's going to buy you time, and then you can keep doing that or try other things. But don't um, put yourself at risk by dropping the thing that's working uh, to find the thing that may or may not. Obviously. The hardest thing is to find something that works. So that's probably where a lot of the pressure in, in, is initiated. But after that, I would, you know, um, kind of not maintain that level of pressure internally. Why do you think is that people self-impose uh, pressure on them? Um, I think people have. On, on, it's a good question. I, I'm just thinking. I'm thinking the answer. Um, I, I think um, people have 
people are used to setting expectations for themselves. Um, and they, they adopt those expectations from others. So they, they, they look around and they go, well, we should be like this. We should be like that. We should have this level of success. I hear these guys are going 60%. Well, so should we, whatever it is. Like they adopt, they adopt others' expectations and they put them on themselves. I think people do that quite frequently because they are in a comparison mindset. I've never been one to compare. I don't, I don't like comparisons. Um, I don't think that they're particularly healthy. I think what you need to find is something that works for you. And it doesn't really matter whether or not it works for another business or not. Um, so I think that's probably one of one of the big parts is, is they they look out to the world and they compare themselves to others who are they think doing better or growing faster or whatever it is. And then they adopt those those goalposts and then they try to aim for them. And all of a sudden they've created a lot of pressure for themselves that was maybe unnecessary. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in generalities because this is a general question and general point. But I do think that's kind of how this this tends to go is comparison drives a lot of that stress. So do you, are you a believer that compare yourself to your yesterday self and all, all those things? Not really. Um, I I think you should just try to do the best you can, you know? And um, I'm not saying, and, and that's careful choice of words, but I'm not saying the better you can. I'm saying the best you can. You do the best you can on a given day, and some days are better than others, and some weeks and some months and some years are better than others. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I'm not better is the comparison. I, I don't like better. I like just do the best that you can, um, which means like put your you know put your full abilities into something, and produce what you can make. You know, versus like looking back, did I do better today than I did yesterday? I, I don't think there's even such a thing, frankly. Um, I mean, maybe if you're in some sort of competitive sport and you're timing yourself and you need to, you know, run a four minute mile and you ran 403 today and 401 today. Okay. Most things are not like that where you can really know if you're really doing better than you did yesterday. It's more about how's the trend? How am I generally doing? Uh, and, and do I feel like I'm giving it my all my best? That's, I think, all you can ask for yourself. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible point, actually. And that, that is downsides too. Because if you, run uh, four miles yesterday you say i run 4.1 today so that's better than yesterday so i'll go and limit the growth yeah the, the other part about that is um again unless you're like really training for something specific where you need to qualify you need to get a certain time to qualify if you don't need to do that um i don't think it's healthy to compare numbers um because i think it, it tends to um uh, it, it tends to force the wrong questions. So rather than asking yourself, you know, I want to run a four minute mile. I'm just making up numbers. That's like incredibly hard. Let's get back to like, I want to run a six minute mile. Um, and I only ran a 605 today. And you're like, well, I was trying to run a six. So I should, I guess, be disappointed in myself. I guess I should say like, well, I need to work harder. I don't know. Maybe you just ran a 605 today because you did. Um, how about another set of questions? Like, did you enjoy yourself? Um, do you feel good? Um, did you get some fresh air? Did you move your body today? Like those are things you can say, yeah, I sure did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those are the right questions to me. Not like, did you hit the number that you made up? Um, again, if you're trying to qualify for something external, like a, a marathon and you need to have a certain number to qualify, different story, but most people are not in that. 
they're, they're, they're acting like they are, but they're not really in that. So I think you, you need to shift your questions. Yep. That's yep. not, we're talking about qualification here. So I want to pivot to how did the Jeff Bezos and 37 Signals deal come about? I was reading about it, it was very interesting. Yeah. We, um, we were, we've been around for a few years. Um, and, um, I was speaking at a, a conference in 2005. We launched Basecamp in 2004. I was speaking at a conference in 2005 in, in San Diego, California. And Jeff was speaking there. And I think Jeff, Jeff was, Jeff liked to sit in the audience. So he would go give a talk and then he'd sit in the audience, I think in the front row and listen to other speakers, which I think is a wonderful quality for someone who's as successful as he is. Um, and, and I think he liked what I had to say. And, um, and so there was there was that experience that he, he liked what I had to say. And then I think a couple of the companies he had invested in were using Basecamp at the time. So he was familiar with us. So I think it was a few different exposures. And then um, we got a call from um, from someone in his office saying he'd like to meet with us. And um, I'd been approached by many people who wanted to invest money in our company, and we've never taken outside money, and I, I don't ever want to. But um, the chance to meet Bezos in 2006 was a, yeah, absolutely. I'm, ha I'm happy to do that. Please let's set it up. So we, so we did. And so we, we caught up a couple times and, um, and then, um, we, we chatted about, um, him and buying a small piece of the company and I'm kind of jumping over some things, but, um, that's how that came to be. So it was a few different experiences. He thought we we're doing something interesting. He likes to support people who are doing interesting, unique, original things. We lined up with that. The timing was interesting. Um, we were a couple of years in on Basecamp, and so we thought maybe it might make sense to take some risk off the table. So the shares that that Jeff bought came out of my pocket and David's pocket. David's my business partner, so the money didn't go into the business. Um, it went to us as founders to take a little bit of risk off the table and put a little bit of money in the bank, so we could sort of have a little bit more confidence moving forward that even if this thing fell apart, it'd be okay. Um, and uh, so that's that's what we did. And we we used to talk to him once or twice a year, have dinner once or twice a year. But it's been a while. I think we talked to him a few years ago. Um, we don't talk that much anymore. Um, but uh, he's available if we would need to. Yeah. Uh, how is it like meeting? And how big was Amazon at that time? Amazon was, I don't know. I mean, this is 2005, six. You could look it up. I, I don't know. It was, I mean, quite big still. Of course, nothing like it is today, but 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 massive and, and innovative. Um, he's a, he's a fascinating guy in that... Um, I can't remember another person in my professional life that I've been around that um, was such a quick learner and such a great listener and made you feel, um, I felt really good about what we were doing for many, many days after meeting him. There's a certain, um, he cast a certain spell of, of, of positivity. Now, I know this is different maybe for people who work for him, you know, I think he's probably a tough boss and has high expectations. But in our context, um, he was uh, so he was a, a cheerleader in a sense and uh, celebrating our point of view and um, and just a quick study and a, and and a really positive force. I mean, a really positive force. That's what I felt most. Is this real strong sense of positivity and optimism around him, which was a really uh, unique thing, frankly. Um, and uh, I hadn't really experienced that before in my career. So that was really nice. And um, also, like, he asked a lot of questions and he's a great listener, which is something, you know, again, it's, it's a tough skill. And you'd expect, people would expect that someone as successful as Jeff 
would would be in a place where he you wouldn't think he'd be learning from other people or something like that. Like that's would be that would be a common misconception. But he's just the opposite of that in my in my experience. He's very curious, loves to learn, loves to hear different points of view, loves to be challenged on points of view. And we've had a, a really wonderful time meeting him. We just don't talk that much anymore because it's been a while and there's not a whole lot of dialogue necessary anymore. Um, but I've always thoroughly enjoyed our conversations. Why do you think is uh, a lot of dialogue not important? That's a good question. I mean, we talked to him a couple of years ago. Um, I think we we would we would go to him. He, he doesn't volunteer his time. You know, you kind of ask for it. Um, and we haven't had anything sort of on our mind in the last few years that would require his perspective. We want to be really respectful of his time. Um, very busy person, obviously, has a lot of demands on his time. And and I want to make sure that if we were to ask for some of it, we'd really have a reason. Um, and we just haven't had a reason. But if a reason came up, we would certainly um, ask. And he's always been generous with it. But I think part of that is a, is a respect for, for it in that if we asked a lot and the things we were asking for were sort of inconsequential, I don't think he would be as generous moving forward. So we're just very thoughtful about that. And we want to pick our pick our conversations um, carefully so so they're meaningful. What is the biggest thing or the most important thing that he taught you and David and you implemented that? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the most important thing was this uh, general idea um, that you should make sure you focus on the things that don't change. Um, a lot of businesses are are very, very focused on change. You know, like um, chat GPT comes out and everyone's like, well, we're an AI company. We're AI. like, fair enough. But like, okay, that might be true. But like, what's this, what's it going to look like in a few years? Like, you know, you're going to keep changing and changing and changing and always changing. Or are you going to focus on things that don't change? People are always going to want from you. And the examples he gave us were these. He said, people are not going to wake up in 10 years and wish Amazon's shipping was slower. People are not going to wake up in 10 years and wish Amazon's prices were higher. People are not going to wake up in 10 years and wish Amazon's selection was worse, etc. Right? So, so you know, and, and or people are not going to wake up and wish Amazon's customer service was worse. I mean, these are the fundamentals that you need to continue to invest in. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't explore and try new things. And Amazon's a company that has built enormous additional businesses and tried a whole bunch of things and continues to experiment a lot and all that. But, but it, it's not um, uh, in exchange for focusing on the basics. Like they've put so much money and effort into distribution and warehousing to keep prices low, to keep shipping fast, to keep selection high. All the things he talked about with us, about these things are always going to matter. They've been investing in those things in a big, fundamental, huge, huge way. Um, so I think for us, like customer service is one of those things. Fundamental simplicity is one of those things. Um, our products are straightforward. We always aim to make them very straightforward. People aren't going to go, I've got, I wish Basecamp or I wish Hay was a lot harder to use. But they're, not, they're also not going to say, I wish that it took three days to get for a customer service to get back to me. We get back people usually within the hour, right? If they email us. Um, so we've invested in a lot of those things. We also, they're not going to say, I wish it was harder to understand what the product did. Like we, we focus a lot on clarity and trying to explain things very clearly and those are the things that we try to do um, to make sure that um, that we're fair and uh, that our products get better at the fundamental level. Yeah, that's that's pretty important advice actually. But and especially now where, like you said, with ChatGPT and new AI tools will come every day. 
how have you like going off topic a little bit how have you implemented this the change part um well our products are always changing every six weeks we we ship new features um and um but but uh it doesn't mean every six weeks the products radically change i, I don't think that's a good thing either people feel like there there's instability if things are radically changing all the time so we're just careful about the things that we decide to do um and there's moments when we focus on improving the things we have versus launching brand new things and there's other times where we launch brand new things you know it just it's a feel that we it's an ebb and a flow and a feel for what's worth focusing on right now um so uh and then and then there are major changes that come about um and uh and, and major shifts and we pay attention to those and implement some and not implement others and wait for some to see where they go and you know whatever you just kind of pay attention but uh we don't we don't chase and i'm not like rapidly going to be changing things uh, I, I don't think things need to be immediately whiplashed and changed so fast that people are like, well, what, what's going on here? So um, I think you just pay attention and, and then you find the right time to do the right thing when it actually is meaningful and not just, um, you know, just following or chasing a trend. So I want to pick you on the last part. So you said that BSCAM does not change rapidly and all these. So, but a common advice that we, that startups that you get that the only advantage they have over bigger organizations is that speed yep. and change. So they can change rapidly. How do you think this goes against the common misconception? Oh, we ship things faster than pretty much any other company. So we're, we're always improving our products every six weeks, six weeks after six weeks, after six weeks, after six weeks, new features, fundamental changes of the product are occurring. So we move very, very, very fast. Um, it, many things are actually improved in a matter of weeks and not just six. Six is the most we spend on any one individual feature. Most companies get bogged down spending three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever months. I missed a few numbers in there, but like they're focused on law, like long shipping horizons, long product development horizons. We're looking at short, rapid, uh, product development. Um, so I do think you, you should, you should play to your strengths, especially when you're small, which is you can move quickly. Um, and I think we're moving at a, a very, very quick, rapid pace, but also a controlled one. And what I mean by that is that. We're not radically throwing the product around and radically changing the interface every you know month or two or shoving in the latest, greatest, new, whatever, and, and changing the way everything works all the time. I, people want some sense of stability. They want to see that you're there making something better, but they also want stability. Um, and so finding the right balance there is very important, I think. How does a startup achieve sustainable speed? That's not crazy, but... It's good. Yeah. Um, well, I think they need to figure that out for themselves because every, every company is a bit different. But um, one way to look at it is how do people feel? Uh, how do your employees feel about the work that you're doing? Do they feel burned out? Do they feel like these things are working on never end? Do they feel like um, they work on a bunch of stuff for a long time that gets canceled? Do, you know, do they, what, what, how does it feel to them? So you know, there needs to be a feeling of sustainability internally that you can keep working in the way you're working in perpetuity. If, if you're just sprinting and, and pulling all-nighters and whatever all the time, like that is not sustainable, period. It just is not. Or it is, but you have to keep throwing new people in because other people quit. And that is a major disadvantage. You lose institutional knowledge. Uh, people don't necessarily know how to, how to jump in and get going. There's not a, a sense of camaraderie because everyone's new all the time. Um, that, that's a disadvantage. So you got to find ways to develop at a um, consistent 
comfortable pace that um, doesn't burn anybody out, that continues to improve the products over a certain period of time, you know, consistently, so customers get what they need, um, and that's profitable. I mean, you know, there's there's that whole thing too with sustainability, like profitability and sustainability go hand in hand in my world and a lot of people's world in our industry. They don't. They just burn through other people's money. We want to make sure here for for long term and be profitable. So we need to make all the stuff work. Um, so the size of the company matters and your cost structure matter. All those things also matter. All those things have to be sustainable too. So there's, I think there's a lot of different components that go into sustainability, um, depending on what, what uh, lens you're looking at it through. So uh, if you are, let's say, 10 employees and a new person joins your team, yeah. how do you train them to work at the same speed that you were working on? One of the best ways to do it is to, you know, essentially throw them in the deep end, uh, get them involved in real projects right away. The sooner they can get involved in real stuff, the better off they're going to be. And um, that's that's how you do it. So you typically would pair someone brand new up with someone who's been around for a while. You don't want to throw two brand new people together who've never worked in this environment because they're not going to know how to do it. So you pair people up with with you know experienced veterans or however you want to put it, and um, and you get them going on something real, and you get them shipping something real soon uh and then they observe and they see how things go and they understand how things work and they see what other people are making and and then they pick it up pretty quick or they don't i mean it, you know some people don't fit into that method um but and that's okay that happens um but we are always trying to find the right people who fit into to the way we work and uh a lot of people come here because they want to work the way we work they've worked in other places where they're stuck in meetings all day they're making no progress they have to work nights and weekends they're still making no progress things tend to go forever and people are looking for a refuge from that. They want to get off of that ship um, and, and jump in a lifeboat and find an island where like, they can actually relax a little bit and do great work at a, at a, and, and not feel bad. So that's kind of uh, what, we t- what we hope to be for a lot of people. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So how, I want to, again, pivot here a little bit. So how did you and David We met um, <clears throat> online um, and... <laughs> uh, I was I was learning how to program, and um, I didn't really I knew enough to build something kind of sort of, but I didn't know how to do what I really needed to do. So I um, wrote uh, online um, a question, and I'm trying to remember now if it was on our blog or on some message board. I, the story's been our blog, but I'm unable to find that blog post. So, I, but we we lost a bunch of early blog posts, so I'm not sure where it was. But I wrote something about how. I was learning. I, I needed help with um, pagination. Uh, I was learning PHP. It was PHP, and I couldn't figure out quite how to do pagination. And um, I got help from a number of people who responded via email. But David, real David's response, he responded via email, and it was really concise, thorough. Actually, not concise. It was thorough, unclear, and we just sort of went back and forth a few times, and we just kind of hit it off. Like I, I liked the way he explained things. He liked what I was building. He was a fan of the company. So he already knew 37 Signals at the time. He was a fan of the, of the company. Um, and it just so turned out that uh, we started working together on some projects. He helped me finish this thing that I was trying to build, which was a side project for me. And then I, I brought him on to uh, build, um, to write the back end for this credit union's intranet that we were building. As a, This was before we were doing Basecamp. We were a web design firm and um, this company wanted us to redo their intranet. And we didn't have anyone to do the back end. We only had somebody to do the front end, which is me. I was doing the front end design, um, but we didn't have a programmer. So I'm like, David, do you want to do this with us? And he was a student uh, in school, business school. So we didn't have a lot of time, but he had enough. And we built that together. 
Uh, and then we just kind of built a few more things together and then decided to build Basecamp. So it was just this sort of um, chance encounter. And then, hey, there's something here that where we're clicking on some things and we see some things the same way. We respect each other's work and appreciate the perspectives that each of us, of us brought to the projects. And we just kind of kept working together and it just kind of kept kept building. Yes, he... And he was, yeah, anyway, he was in Denmark. He was in Denmark. I was in Chicago. So we worked remotely um, very early. Um, uh, and, and we've been working remotely essentially ever since. So remote work is something that comes very natural to us. Yeah. You, wrote, you wrote a book about it. We know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So I want to pick a small part from your, the last thing is, so he was in business school and it is, they teach how to do business. And but you guys built uh, the business, the non-business school way, right? So how did how did the start the line there? Um, David had seen. So David had worked for um, a few other companies at the time that were built the business school way, raising a bunch of money, and you know the whole business school way with middle managers and lots of meetings and the whole thing. And he didn't get it at all. He's like, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. And I, I'd worked at a few, and I'm like, I don't get it either. It doesn't make any sense. So um, uh, even though he went to business school, and so did I. I didn't go to business school to get a um, MBA, but I, my my degree's in finance, so I have a bachelor's in that. Um, so I was exposed to all the business stuff, you know. Um, I didn't get it either. Uh, so uh, so it's good to be exposed to it. You want to kind of understand the basics, perhaps, and 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 get excited about some of those things. But um, we just built it the way we felt like it would make sense. And most, most of all, we built the kind of company that we'd want to work at. And um, it wasn't a company that was full of meetings. It wasn't a company that was beholden to outside investors. It wasn't a company that made you work nights and weekends. It wasn't a company that made tons of promises they couldn't keep. It, it wasn't a company that had too many people. It wasn't a company with teams that were bloated. You know, all the things we didn't, we didn't want any of those things. So we didn't build any of those things. Um, so I, I think um, in some ways, it's really good to have a, a good view of, of what tradition looks like. Uh, and then And then you go your own way. I think it's healthy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So how do you, how do you and David perceive business and how is it different from the world view? Well, you know, what's interesting is that our view is, is actually incredibly mainstreamed. Um, every pizza shop, every convenience store, every bar, every restaurant, every dry cleaner, every small business on main street works the way we do, which is they make more money. They're out to make more money than they spend. Simple business, right? So it's, it's only in our industry where there's not only in, in ours only and biotech is similar. And there's a few others um, where biotech's different though, because biotech, you do need to raise a bunch of money to do a lot of clinical experiments and, and a lot of R and D in, in our world and software world specifically, uh, the 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 big stories are always the big money raises the big the big you know vc rounds and and but but that's not the norm actually most small business most businesses most of them are small uh that make software have to do it the same way we have to do it which is we have to make more money than we spend if we don't make more money than we spend we go out of business there's no one there to rescue us there's no one else there to pump more money in uh we have to make more than we spend just like pretty much every other business on the planet that's what our the, the, the pizza shop down the street is not selling pizzas at a loss. The dry cleaner is not cleaning your shirt at a loss. They're not. And so what's funny is that in our industry, we're way out of line in a sense, but, but, but in terms of business, we're right way in line. We're very, very mainstream and very boring in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
but so like your competitors are they are owned by substantially like big companies and have raised a ton of money so how do you survive against giants like them well how much money a company raises has nothing to do with uh anything other than how much money they can lose <laughs> um, a lot of our competitors are losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year um literally they're losing hundreds of millions of dollars selling a very similar product to what we sell um they have huge staffs bloated staffs their marketing expenses are through the roof um and uh, they're losing tons of money we're, we're not we're profitable so i would say how do they compete with us um because they're losing money non-stop and haven't haven't many of them have not made a penny ever um so we're doing just fine um i'm not really getting concerned with what they're doing i'm aware of it and many of them are public so you can look up their s1s and see how they're doing and see what they're losing and where they're losing it um so yeah i, I don't i don't think i mean one, one thing that, that a lot of money can do of course is 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 um is is buy market share, buy mind share, and drown out others, and and that has happened to some extent. So some of our competitors have spent tons and tons and tons of money buying up all the ad inventory, and that's a thing. That's a way to to generate mind share and market share. But if they can't do it profitably, which they have not been able to do, at some point, truth comes due, and I you know they'll have to figure out how to run their business at that point. How's your perspective about competitors changed from when you started out? and to how it is now um you know when we started we were competing against really a big company basically microsoft sort of right microsoft had what was called microsoft project this is for basecamp way back in the day and you know like we had an enemy in them sort of but it wasn't so much them as it was their concept of project management so for them it was about charts and graphs and statistics and for us, it was about something totally different. It was about communication and organization and sharing and discussing and deciding. And so I've always looked at competition in terms of, of ideas, not specific companies, because companies come and go. Who competes with you now will not be competing with you later, and there'll be a new one that starts next week. And you know, But it's the ideas. So that's how I tend to think about it. We tend to focus on our own ideas, on the things we think work really well, and everyone else can focus on their stuff. And I think it's really important not to get too caught up with what everyone else is doing. Um, I just wrote a post recently about like your really true competition is your own costs or are your own costs. You know, if you can't make your business work, you don't get to compete with anybody. So you got to get that right first. And that's sort of the uh, the primary thing that we're focused on. So no. the, this, the business that you guys have built, it is a business which functions like a normal uh, dentist like you gave an example of. Yep. So, how do you think there are companies which require a lot of funding just to get started? How do you think does that correlate with business? There certainly are different categories of companies. Um, you know, I can imagine if you're going to make a car or you're going to make a, you know, a spaceship or an airplane or, or not even anything that sophisticated. Let's just say you're going to make... Um, a new toothbrush or, or whatever it might be, right? You you are going to have capital costs that are beyond just human capital and a few computers. Now, in some cases, though, you can, you know, some some companies might spend a lot of money on hardware, but maybe the best thing to do initially is to find a, um, 
you know, another company that can build this stuff for you. So you can offload some of your costs to them um, and, and that without having to make a big investment up front. Um, but yeah, there are definitely some companies and some industries that require significant investment. Biotech comes to mind as one of them. A lot of companies that have significant regulations will also require significant capital because uh, testing is required and you know, regulation compliance is required and you have to go through a lot of process. You may have to have a lot of lawyers and the whole thing. Get it. Yes, that's true. That exists. Absolutely. For software businesses, though, I just don't think it really exists. Um, I mean, maybe here and there. I don't know. Perhaps. But in most cases, no. And in many of the cases that I see people raising big sums of money for, absolutely not. Um, and so that's my point. It's not that nobody needs money. Certainly, lots of companies need money. But only specific companies really can put the money to good use um, and really, truly do need it to get off the ground. Now, there are other cases where you're an entrepreneur and you're in the software business and you might need to hire one person and that requires money, salary. Um, and you know, you might need some friends and family money up front. You might need to take a bank loan. There's other ways. It's hard. None of this is easy, but to go out and raise a whole bunch of money, um, that you don't need, I think is, is putting you, uh, in a pretty difficult position. Um, so anyway, that's my sense. I think you're better off, for example, with a loan, if you can figure out how to get one of those and pay it off and still own your company in full versus giving up equity early on to someone else who has expectations about your growth and what kind of company you need to be. Like when you get a bank loan, the bank just wants their money back in a certain period of time with interest. They don't care what your growth patterns are. They're not aiming to, for you to be a certain kind of company. They just want their money back. And I think that's a safer place to be for you. So did you guys take a loan when you started out? No. So when we first started the business, there was three founders and we each put $10,000 of our own savings into the business. So we had $30,000 to start. Um, and we didn't need all that because all we needed to do really was uh, buy a computer. We each had a computer already, but let's say we're going to buy a new computer, which was a couple grand. And we needed an internet connection. And that was really all we needed. But we put in a little bit extra because we felt like it'd be nice to have a little bit of cushion mentally. Um, so we did that. And um, that was the only money that ever went into the business. But it was it was our money and the founder's money. And it was, it was 10000 each. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I was reading somewhere that Paul Graham also says that you would have to invest everything you have, start out small, and then grow as you. Yeah, you know, look, most businesses don't work. Almost all of them don't work. Any ones that work are, are an anomaly. They really shouldn't work, really, kind of. Um, and so to put your life savings into something or everything you have, it's a major, major, major risk. And uh, a it could have a significant negative impact on your life. Um, so, you know, entrepreneurship is not everything. Uh, you know, you may want to get a job. It's a lot more stable. You might be able to get a job somewhere or at a small business where you can have a lot of impact. A lot of entrepreneurs want to get into business to have a lot of impact. Small, at small businesses, you can have a lot of impact. Potentially, you have a lot more um, to say and to do, and there's fewer people, and you know, and you can do that for a while and build up some savings or whatever it might be. Whatever you want to do is up up to you, but. But uh, I would not, personally, I would not risk everything uh, for a business. I don't think a, I don't think business is that important. Now, let me just say this though too: there are cases where people do this with restaurants, for example, or small family businesses, and and you know it, it might be in that case they have no choice. Like there there are situations where you kind of have no choice, um, and so they just do it, or or that's a tradition in their family, and they and they do that. So. It can work. It's just a major, 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 major risk. And so you just have to go into it understanding that if you if you drain your life savings for this, like what happens if this doesn't work? You got to think ahead. 
that you guys i mean it's a personal question that if you weren't have started base camp what would you have done i don't know um and i uh i don't think there's any way to answer that question actually um um i think if i rolled the tape back and played it again i would do the same thing you know that's what you're going to do at that time um i knew what i didn't want to do i didn't want to so i got a degree in finance in college and university and i i didn't want to go work at a bank i didn't want to go work as a consultant that's what a number of my friends ended up doing who sort of had similar majors or they worked at a venture capital fund or or a private equity fund or or an investment bank thing it, that just didn't do it for me so that that i knew i didn't want to do um but i didn't i didn't really know what i wanted to do i just did what i enjoyed doing and it turned into something but i wasn't um it's not like i couldn't wait to start a business it, it, that that wasn't my thing so much um i just wanted to make stuff i wanted to do things that i enjoyed doing and turned into a business but it wasn't what i intended on starting necessarily how did we talked about you starting the business how did the writing about books serial author thing come about um uh, why did we just start decide to start writing books yeah um we had we had learned a lot of things because we did we didn't pay attention to the industry so the way the industry was doing things and the way we were doing things was quite a bit different it's like we were on an island and we were just had a different almost a different um path of evolution at that point we're we're different creatures doing different things with different adaptations and we felt like uh this method and approach could benefit a lot of people it really worked out well for us and it was not it was not being discussed it was not being talked about the the narrative was not our narrative and so we wanted to just add add a perspective saying you know you can you can run a business a different way you can start small and stay small that's not bad you don't need to grow at all costs uh you don't need to raise a bunch of money um you can think about software in these different ways you can think about design and programming and technology and and hiring and leader all of these different things that we've kind of figured out how to do in a different way uh we thought we should put that stuff out there and then we just you know we had we had strong opinions and we just kept writing and sharing and and more and more people were interested in what we had to say about these things and we you know built a following and it made sense eventually to write books our first book though um was called getting real and it was uh, a pdf just a we distributed it ourselves we didn't have anyone publish it it was just a pdf um and now it's available as a pdf and also free online entirely free but um rework was our first a major book with a major publisher and we decided to go that route because we felt like um there was just some um people would take it more seriously if it was a real book with a hard cover from a real publisher from New York, you know, that whole thing. And so that did help us get the word out. And we knew that if we wanted to spread our message, it needed to be taken more seriously to that degree and need to be sh- easily shared. And a PDF is not something that's like shared with an executive somewhere and anyone takes it seriously. But a book, you can put a book on someone's desk. And so that was sort of the idea and that's why we went in that direction. Yeah, that that's exactly true. I mean, I did I do read books from PDFs. But sure. I don't know the name of the authors of most of them. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, look, PDFs are great and digital formats are great and all this yeah. stuff. But there's still something about, uh, like, I've got I've got our latest book over here. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. And when I drop this on the desk, here's what it, you know what it looks like for people. Yeah. Um, when I drop this on the desk, it makes a sound. Like I can I can put this on someone's desk. I can give this to someone and say, check this out. You know, there's something about that that's a little bit different than like texting someone a PDF or sending someone a link like th- this has a this this is a lots of years of human history have been backed up in books and there's something about a book that still resonates that nothing else really quite does so uh 
That's how we do that. And that, that's educated privilege. Book is that resume? This is called, um, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. Uh, yeah. And this is our, our latest major publisher, uh, major published book. Yeah. yeah it's kind of the follow-up to rework in a sense. It, it came over 10 years, uh, about 10 years later, but it was, um, uh, very much sort of the spiritual follow-up to what we were saying in rework modernized. Yeah. I mean, talking about rework, when you guys published it, of course, I was a bit too small to read it, but from what I've gathered from when it was published, you faced a lot of backlash from the hustle community about that you should keep grinding and your narrative was completely opposite to that. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. The first review we ever got, I wish I could find it. I'll have to see if I could look for it, but was a scathing, terrible review from a traditional um, business management magazine. I forget the name of it, but it was so negative. It's like, this is just a joke and this is terrible. And we read that and we were like, yes, like this is great. It's so great that the mainstream traditional business press hates this. This is, we're onto something. This is exactly right. So um, we, we, you know, we took that as, as a, as a, as a badge of honor, frankly. And then every time, you know, uh, we, we heard bad reviews in that vein, you always have to wonder who's the critic, who's the critic, what are their motivations? And whenever it was traditional business, whatever, business thinking, business ideas, business press, whatever, and they hated it, we're like, we're onto something. So that's how we always use. And still today we use like that. We still have lots of hate coming our way for, you know, this topic or that topic or this approach or that approach, whatever. Um, and it always fuels us, I think, uh, in a way, because you think about who's the critic and what, what, what perspective, where are they coming from? And there's also sometimes critics, obviously, who you deeply respect, who, who have a, a different point of view than you do. And, and you, you'd certainly like want to listen to those, I think, at a different level. But it's nice when things are dismissed right out of hand. And yeah, this is just stupid. Like, thank you. We appreciate that. Because that's, we're onto something. So that, that's how we've, that's how I've treated it. I think you kind of have to. I mean, if, if you let other people's opinions get you down, then they, they control you. You know, this is the thing, like if you, if you absorb their perspective and you become uh, upset by it or, or frustrated by it, um, then you're letting someone else tell you how you want to live your day or your week or your month. And, 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 and then they are taking control of you. And I'm not interested in, in that approach. How do you differentiate between these opinions and constructive critics? Do you, um, yeah, I think it depends on, on who the critic is and where they're coming from and what their motivations are. I think that that's what you have to look at first. Um, and um, you know, so, sometimes we'll write some stuff about about shape up, which is our 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 development methodology. And then people who have a vested interest in, let's say, agile, will come, you know, with pitchfor pitchforks and start fighting. You know, the common thread. And it's like, well, I get it. They they have a vested invested interest in this other way of doing things, which is at odds, let's say, with with shape up. So no wonder. But if you, if I hear from someone who's been trying to use shape up for a year and they're really struggling with it or it didn't work or whatever, that's a different, I'm going to listen up to everything, but that's a different, it's absorbed differently because you, you, you sort of, um, um, you, you want to, you want to hear that differently because it's, it's coming from a place of we tried, I, I believed in this and it didn't pan out for us. And I want to know, I want to know why, like what happened? And I'm curious about that. More so than I am about someone who's clearly um, has a, has a, a bone to pick with us for some other reason. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an incredible point. I mean, you published rework thirteen years ago, if I'm not wrong. I think so. How's your 
perspective about the book changed from then to now? Uh, on the book, um, I've gone back and, and read it a few times, and I'm I'm quite proud of how well it stands up because the ideas are, um, they're philosophical in nature. Uh, they're they're points of view rather than specific recommendations in a sense that that could age out. So, for example, we wrote another book called um, Remote, and I was looking through Remote recently. This came after Rework, and it's funny uh, the the ideas in Remote are still very solid. But the recommend some of the recommendations are way out of date. I'm like recommending WebEx. You probably don't even know what that is. Uh, WebEx for like, yeah. yeah. And there's something called Join Me, and there's like you know, um, uh, I forget what the other one was, some Cisco thing. And it's like yeah. all the video conferencing tools that we recommended, like they're old now. They may not even exist, or they do, but they're in the fringe now. And so there's some of that in there, which which in in remote is sort of kind of littered with some of that in a sense. But um, I, I I refer to rework all the time. We live by it constantly um, and then it doesn't have to be crazy at work is sort of the follow-up which is an additional 80 some odd essays um, that are still in line with rework and, and add to rework. so I'm I'm very proud of that book I'm extremely proud of it what's very interesting is it has a very very long shelf life um, I hear from tons of people I get emails all the time because our email addresses are in the book at the end um, for people who have read it or reading it uh, a lot of people in India I'm hearing from right now somehow it became big in India um, and uh, and that's really cool. Um, it's been translated into a few dozen, maybe. Well, I shouldn't say a few dozen, but well over a dozen languages, maybe maybe a few dozen by now. Um, and that's that's really rewarding and, and satisfying to know that the message is, is out there and still current. I'd feel bad if it was old, but it really isn't. It could come out today and it would be just as relevant as when it came out in 2010. No, I, I want to. We just drift over for from rework for a second. You mentioned Webex there. Webex is terrible. I have to say, I've tried it out a couple of times. So w how do you think that Cisco is a pretty big company, but the product has died down. Why do you think is that? Well, I, sometimes it's interesting because sometimes it's because of their product and other times it's just because um, things change elsewhere. Like Zoom came around, for example. And, and the, the real thing about Zoom, I, I, I noticed, was it was easy. It's, it's a simple thing. First of all, Zoom is really good. WebEx was good too. Quality was good. But Zoom made it really easy just to share a link to jump into a chat with someone. Do you remember what WebEx was like? It's like, here's this long email with like a, a long URL and some code you had to type in. You had to, even with Zoom, you have to download an app. But like that whole process was complicated with WebEx and with Zoom, it just worked. All those kinds of things. And the quality was really good on Zoom. It just was, it was one step easier, literally one step easier fundamentally very similar, but one step easier. And we're trying to, and, and, and I think, you know, obviously during COVID, everyone started doing video conferencing and people are going to flip to the easiest thing and it just took off. So I think what ends up happening is companies like Cisco who bought it, I don't think they started WebEx or maybe they did. I don't remember how that all worked out, but um, they, they, um, you know, they do a lot of things. They do a whole lot of things. This is not the only thing they do. Things have been around for a while. You become complacent, stagnant, attention shifts and swerves and goes somewhere else. And you have a company like Zoom who basically did one thing really, really well and made it really, really easy. And uh, it's sort of just, that's how these things work sometimes. It's almost like, it's not like WebEx is bad necessarily, but Zoom was just better in the, in, in, in the ways that helped it spread. And then the quality held up. They did have some different a different approach to to video conferencing too. It was peer to peer, I think, um, and uh, I think it was. 
or they had, they had servers all over the world. It was just a little bit, everything was faster, more reliable, higher quality. And then screen sharing was easier and all that stuff. So anyway, sometimes it just happens. Sometimes things just have life cycles too, you know? Uh, no one lives forever. Products don't live forever. Even if they're good, they die. It just can happen. Things things move on. How do you minimize the life cycle at Basecamp? If it does. Yeah, you do the best you can. I mean, like we, we every few years, we completely redesign the product. So um, had we just continually improved the initial version, which came out in 2004, we wouldn't have been able to make the massive leaps in progress that we've been able to make over the last 18 years because we would have been stuck building on something that wasn't capable of really handling new ideas. Um, and so the first version was around for about eight years, it's still around, but we don't sell anymore. Then Basecamp 2 was around for four or five, then Basecamp 3 came out for another four or five, and then we're on Basecamp 4 now. And these are, three and four are similar, but but fundamentally, every time we make a, a version shift, it's oftentimes a brand new product. And um, that's how you maintain I think a degree of freshness and allow yourself to be open to new ideas versus going, man, we really can't change that because if we change that, we're going to upset a hundred thousand customers. And so you end up getting very protective and you don't want to upset the apple cart. You don't want to change things that should be changed. So when we do a new version, we don't make old customers change to the new version. We let them stay with where the, what they want and they can transition if they like. That allows us to be flexible and free to do new things. And I think you need to have that approach. So you had incredible design product product designs how do you think has it changed from 2008 to no product design yeah. um how's it changed i think a lot of things have gotten a lot better um so i think like um a lot of products are really quite good at, at onboarding and the initial customer experience that's i think something that's really gotten a whole lot better over the last 10 15 years even five years um it used to be starting a new product was like, okay, like, how am I going to learn this thing? And now it's, it's, it's very, a lot of them are very, very good. Um, there's a lot of mobile first thinking now, which of course has changed a lot. And I think that's some of that simplicity is, tra is transitioned back into the desktop. Um, you can see that even with Apple. So Apple's settings app, um, they've took that design and brought that back onto the Mac, you know? Um, so there's a lot of sort of sharing of ideas there. Um, I think, you know, I think mobile design has really changed a lot of things because uh, products can now be smaller, simpler, and um, and people can still find a lot of value in them. I remember for a long time, people like, it can't be that this, like for a desktop app, it can't be that simple. It's too simple. People aren't going to use it. It's too simple. It needs to do more, 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 more. I don't feel like that's necessarily the driver anymore. I think that's changed a bit. There's always new techniques. I mean, you know, for a while it's single page app stuff and it's a sidebar and this and this becomes popular and whatever. That just will always move around. But I think on balance, uh, software design and interface design has gotten a lot better, just a lot, lot better. It's smoother. It's clearer most of the time. Um, there's more, I think there's more uh, consideration of what it's like to use something again for the first time. Um, and all, all those things are good. I think I think the the progression has been has been very good. If you could go back in time, is there anything that you would say should stick around that has died down eventually? Ah. That's a really, really good question. Um, I do think things have gotten quite a bit. I said they've gotten simpler, but in a lot of cases, they've gotten more complicated. Um, I think specifically around web design. So web design and web-based application design, 
there's a lot you can do a lot more with CSS today than you could do before. There's a lot of things you can do JavaScript you, you couldn't do before, but there was a real purity and simplicity to to things ten years ago, fifteen years ago that I do miss to some degree. Um, espe- like especially if you view source on a website today versus the way it used to be. Like, and I don't mean way, way, way back at the beginning, but ten years ago it was easier. You could just see things were simpler. Now there's just like framework after framework after framework and 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 approach after approach after approach and so many things are obscured. Everything's gotten a lot more complicated, I think, in that way. I'm not sure anything's better because of it, frankly. Um, there's new techniques that are better. Things that were like hacks to do before that you can that are now like built into HTML or CSS, which is which is nice. But a lot of other things, is, I think, have gotten unnecessarily complex, and I think that's all, that's always a shame. So I don't know. Um, it's more the ethos of like uh, we don't need this super tall stack of different things just to put a website out for example or to put a product out but that 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 stack has gotten quite tall so you talked about complexity there now i i've not used a lot of world size minded but from what i've seen from older versions of new sites earlier they were the people getting used to internet so they were onboarding the whole population onto it but now most of them know how certain things work they know the icons they know a lot of things do you think that is one of the reasons why it has become complex yeah yes i do i think that's a good insight is that whenever no one knew anything we're all in this together at the same level of not not knowing anything but 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 I think there's a real beauty in that. Still, I I, I just I, and I even look at our own sites. Like I'm talking not the front but the back of the sites, and I go, why why is this so complicated? Like why are we doing all these complicated things? Like do we need to do these things really? And so when we built um, Hey World, which is our our blogging service, which is part of Hey, we made a very conscious effort to think of it as basically Web 1.0. So any Hey what Hey World post. So if you go to world.heyhey.com slash Jason and click on any one of my posts and you view the source, you will see web 1.0. There's no JavaScript, dead simple styling, um, incredibly fast loading because it's basically just text and not just, just text, but the markup is very light. So it just loads fast. And we want to kind of go back to that day where we go, how, how could this be improved by new technology? Like how could this be improved by new markup techniques? How could this be improved by new frameworks and new layers of this and that? It couldn't have been. It would have been worse. So we, we made it like that was our little uh, us like, you know, a little exercise of the old days in a sense. Like, could we make this still look good, but but be thin and fast? And and we did. And we're really proud of that. Now, it means there's certain things we can't do. So, for example, um, when we have images and posts, like you can't click that image and zoom it up. I mean, we could make it do that, but we've decided not to do that because that wouldn't have been available 15 years ago without javascript so we're like well let's keep javascript out of this so there's some trade-offs but but we wanted to exercise uh, sort of uh exercise uh some of the old methods um in new ways just to kind of remember remind ourselves that things don't need to be as complicated as everyone thinks they need to be is that a reminder for yourself or the world well i mean uh it's it's for it's for everyone but mostly us because we we built it intentionally that way you know, and um, that's that's uh, you know, um, it, you know, 
if people want to view source on, on a hey world post maybe they'll get the message like you know but if they don't want to that's fine too we know why we did it and, and we're actually working on a new product now which i can't talk that much about but we're revisiting um what how how simple can an interface be um and we're just pushing really hard at that and it's 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 a wonderful intellectual and creative exercise to um try to make something that everyone anywhere would understand how to use so we're we're kind of toying with that right now and that's it's fun it's fun to do that and we do see it yeah so we we talked a little about web 1.0 is there so how do some people different from others see internet or see anything differently in which which was the evolution from mm-hmm. web 1.0 to web 2.0 and now potentially web 3.0 um i think what what a, what an end user sees is more complexity uh i think what a developer sees is also more complexity but also more possibility um i don't think end users see possibilities much they see what they're presented and a lot of things have gotten more complicated i think for for a lot of people in some ways and other things have gotten much much easier um so it, it just you know i don't know it's kind of a it's a mix it's 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 a mix of things but um i think on the development side while things have gotten i think i think things have gotten harder actually i think things have gotten harder i mean there's more tools that exist in the world now to use and so in some ways you could say it's easier because if you couldn't do something before now you could do it but i think what ends up happening is right now people are using so many tools to do things that probably don't need all those tools to be used um and i think it, it becomes harder for new people to get into the field in a sense when the learning curve has become so steep in a way that it didn't used to be it was not a steep learning curve before um now it's become quite steep so again now there's more power so you can do more things and that so there it's all trade-offs is you know it's not good or bad necessarily it's it's just a bit different but i don't really know how else to really i think a lot of that one versus two versus three is a little bit of marketing more so than, than anything i mean there's also business model changes like i think web three is sort of or web two i say web two web two is more about software as a service and, and web-based applications and whatnot you know that was kind of the thing um that was a, sort of the major change there um yeah. And browsers have gotten better and you can do more things and all that stuff but i don't know I, i don't really i don't see the clear-cut distinctions necessarily other than seeing how much in a sense how much harder a lot of things have gotten or how, how much more weight things have to hold or something like that things seem heavier than they used to be and I don't, i'm not sure what the real benefit of that is yeah that, i mean you can see that, you can see it too in, in like page loads now it may not matter these days people computers are incredibly fast bandwidth is readily available in most cases but websites have gotten huge like multiple megabytes per page and um i think there's a sense where there's a the certain degree of laziness there um where before people would think a little bit more about that because computers weren't as fast and bandwidth wasn't as 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 prevalent it was tighter and and i i think though that when you lose sight when like those those constraints go away something else is lost at the same time which is a certain mindset of economy and efficiency it's a little bit lost you get a bit lazy and and uh and sloppy because like well these things will will smooth over the efficiencies in my work because everything's fast now it doesn't matter but i i think that i think it's i think that 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 leaks into other other approaches um so anyway i think a little bit of that has been lost but who knows you know it, it's also you could reminisce about the old days and then you know there's a lot of problems with the old days too so who knows 
the problem with everything. Yes. That's, I think we we drift here a little bit. We delve too deep into web design. Uh, so, I, I want to touch back on some things from rework. So, how do you maintain sanity while building a company or scaling it actually? Building is relatively easy. Scaling is yeah. I never think of scale. Never thought about it. I still don't think about it. Um, it grows as big as it grows. It, it it it. But again, if it can't if it, if it can't survive on its own, it doesn't get the chance to grow. So I, you know, it's got to be profitable. It's got to be sustainable. And then it 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 does what it does over time. I mean, um, you can grow for a number of reasons. You can grow to puff up your ego and dominate an industry and you know feel like you're beating everyone else and you're better than it like you can do it for that reason you can do it because you have to because you've raised money and they're requiring you to grow and that's that we don't have that sort of growth is required gene at this company you want to you want more people to use your product because you believe in the product and you think it's really good and you know it can help people and you've seen it help people thousands of people and you're like i know more people can benefit from this and you meet people all the time who are struggling with the things that we help people with um, so you want them to find out about Basecamp or Hay or other things that we've made, but it's not because we're trying to hit a target or a number or a size. It's because we genuinely would think that we can be helpful. Uh, and so that, you know, if you get to a certain scale through that, great. If you don't, that's fine too. We're not aiming for it. We're not saying we have to grow 20% a year or 50% a year, hundred percent. Like th- if you have those targets, you're just different kind of company. And that's where the insanity sneaks in because you're chasing something that you made up it's artificial like we're going to go after this artificial mark that we made on the wall versus we're going to grow within our means at a speed that we can handle um and it's more about um demand and connecting with people and helping them versus 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 trying to get more people to use your thing through all sorts of growth hacks and other sorts of means so so again as long as we're sustainable profitable growth is good for us it's healthy we don't grow every year um, and, uh, but, but we're profitable over here and that's, that's the primary thing we're looking for. You obviously can't shrink forever yeah. either. I mean, you've, you've got to, you can't do that. That won't work. Cause at some point you'll go out of business there too. So just got, we're just looking to find the, the healthy medium. I think, I mean, it's, I look at it kind of more as like a human life in a sense. I mean, you don't grow rapidly, you, you grow consistently and it's compound. The growth is compounding your wisdom compounds and you learn more things as you get older and, and, and you see you have different, but this idea, like when I'm 22, by the time I'm 24, I need to be able to like, whatever, like, I don't know. I don't think that that's really the way it works. Like you, you, you learn as you go, some things you learn faster and some things give you more leverage, but, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a long-term process to, to become wise and to, to get good at what you do. And you can't shortcut that. I think like rapid growth in a lot of ways is shortcutting reality. And I, I don't think it's usually a good outcome. That that was such a great point. The reference to human life thing. Yeah. yeah. I think that so but you do keep goals as such. So how how do you think what your goal was when you started out base camp and how that changed along the way? We don't really keep we don't have goals in a sense. I mean we we we, we um we want to, our goals are more, we're driven by more intrinsic motivation. Like we want to make our product better. We want to work 
on things that we enjoy. We want to work with people who are talented and are good to each other. Um, and we have a degree of quality we want to match and meet, and we want to we want to bring things to the world that will help people and and make those things better. Like you could say that's a goal, but I don't I don't see it as a goal as much as I see it as a as a drive um, to to do the best work you can. I mean, why do anything like this unless you try and do your best? Just kind of just as easy to do your worst in a sense. Like if you're going to do the work, do the work well, and um, and try to make it. Good. I mean, you can take shortcuts that are easier, but you're going to fill your day with shortcuts. Like you've got a certain amount of hours in your day. Um, might as well fill them doing work that that you are proud of. Um, and everyone has a different bar there, but that's sort of our bar. It's not. It's not about growth, and not about goals. It's about improvement and 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 satisfying our own intellectual challenges and create creative desires and and whatever. And uh, when I say our, I mean our company. And that's it. Does there's no numbers we're trying to hit. You know, we pay attention to the numbers because we don't want, again, if we're on the downslide for 15 years or something, at some point it all goes away. Like we don't want that to happen. So we are aware of what's going on. Um, but we, we don't, we don't drive ourselves based on that. I just ask a few more questions. Is it a sure. question? Of course. Do you believe we'll ever see a trillion dollar bootstrap companies? I mean, you don't believe in valuations? But Indian trillion dollar bootstrap company, um, yeah, sure. Why not? You think Basecamp will be that? No, I don't think Basecamp will be. will be the one. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm not even sure. I don't know the his history of, of of Apple, um, but I think if they took money, they only took it once, some one round of early funding or something. It wasn't that much, I think, in the end. If they even did that, I can't quite remember, but, um. Certainly, there's nothing inherently um, impossible about that kind of valuation for a company that generates its own revenue and pays its own way. I mean, there's nothing about that. It might take longer. It might not. I don't know. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're a big believer in remote work. So why do you think are big companies against it? Um, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons, and it, you know, I'm a believer in remote work as a concept, but I don't think it fits everybody and every company and every place and every, every job and all that stuff. So I think every company has to make their own decisions. I think a lot of big companies, they have a lot of structure and they're very used to control. Uh, and they're used to seeing everybody. And there's a sort of a myth that like, you need to be in the same room to, to innovate and collaborate and, but bigger companies have bigger teams and it is harder for a bunch of people to get together virtually and make decisions. It's easier in a room in some ways for a lot of people. I think for smaller companies, it's way easier to do it virtually than to do it physically. But for larger companies with big departments, and uh, it, it's, it can be hard. I get it. Um, they also have a lot of money invested in real estate and, and their office space. And, you know, they want to put that to good use. And again, I think there are uh, situations, plenty of situations where probably being in person makes sense. Um, we've talked about Apple a bunch. Apple pretty much yeah. believes everyone should sort of be at the office. They built this massive, incredible thing. And I think they truly believe that they'll get better work done when everyone's together. And that might be true for their culture in their organization. That's fine. Yet, you know, my point of view is remote is, is a very viable option. It works really well for a lot of companies um, and you should, shouldn't should dismiss it out of hand. It's a very viable option. Um, but if it doesn't work for you, that's fine too. You know, it's cool. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, why did I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a controversial question or not, but I'll just ask. 
Uh, so, why do you think so many employees quit the company after you banned the discussion of the social and political discussion? Yeah, uh, well, so, um, first of all, banned is a tricky word. I just like to use the word Yeah, I'm just saying, like, we said we're not talking politics inside base camp, which is what we used to, to work. Uh, we're not talking, we're not mixing work and politics where we do work. If you want to talk to your coworkers about politics in another place and WhatsApp and what, fine. You want to say it on Twitter? Fine. Up to you. We're not mixing it with where we were. Um, so I think a lot of people just strongly disagreed with that point of view. Um, and um, that's fine. And then, um, you know, we were in, especially in that time, this is kind of during COVID and, you know, there's a lot of, we hadn't seen each other as a company for a couple of years. Typically we do meetups twice a year and I think it renews our humanity with each other. We hadn't seen that. So we're just looking at avatars all the time. And I think, you know, people were locked in their houses for a long time and it was just not a pleasant time. And there was social unrest in the U S and it was, it was very difficult. And I think people were, were, were on edge, um, understandably so. And, um, politics was, was, you know, sort of a, a common sport in a sense at the time, especially. And, um, I think people were on one side or the other and, and uh, not, not like parties, but more like politics social identity or political, um, social politics is foremost, most important thing. And then other people are like, it's not the most important thing. I'm here to work. I have a job. This is what I do. I discuss this other stuff in my life outside of work. I want a place to go to work and not have to worry about those things and not have to think about those things. I think about those things elsewhere, not here. I want to focus on my craft, you know, so that those are the sides basically. And, um, so a lot of people left. So we lost about 30% uh, of the company. Uh, they, they, they left. Um, we offered a very generous severance package. So some people who were going to leave anyway, decided to leave and they left and, and, um, that's their choice. And, and, uh, and we ended up, uh, you know, hiring a bunch of new people and the culture and the company is a much, much better place. It's in one of the best places it's been since we started the business. I'm very happy with, with how we are now and how we work now and, and who's here. And it's been great. And I wish everyone who left well too. I don't, I don't have anything bad to say about anybody who left. Um, I understand their decision and, um, they're free to make it. So that was that. But isn't that a petty issue to be a job? That's up to each person to decide. Um, I know there's a number of people who stayed who didn't like the policy, but they're like, well, you know, I, I like my job. Um, and, uh, I like the people here. And so I disagree with the policy. Like, that's okay. I can do my job and do a great job. And, you know, other people, it was, it was, uh, it crossed some line for them and, and they left. So it's up to them. You know, it was, the other thing that was interesting was it was primar primarily, not entirely, but primarily a U.S. specific thing. So most of the people who left were people who lived in the U.S. And internationally, I think a lot of people who worked here, who, we have about half our companies outside of the U.S. were surprised at the outrage. Like, well, I, don't, I never talk politics at work. That's just not something we do here anyway. I'm not even comfortable with it. I'm glad we're not doing it anymore. It's so, culturally just like not something we do in this country or that country. So a lot of people were very you know, uh, relieved by, by the decision. So it just, you know, but everyone comes from a different perspective, different place, different backgrounds, um, different life experiences, and they're going to make their own decisions. They're all adults and they, they can choose for themselves what, what, you know, what, where they want to work and what they want to do and what they want to support and how they want to be. And that's totally fine. The reason why I asked that question is I was talking to a founder the other day. He uh, told me that brought a lot of negative press towards the company. So how did you, deal with that in the moment it was very hard um it was very hard uh and it, there was a lot of sadness uh personally and professionally um i feel like i lost a handful of really good friends um 
and uh, people I'd worked with for a long, long time, 10, 12, 15 years, you know, um, we've been through a lot of things together. So that, that was hard. Um, and it was, of course, very hard to have uh, the public, uh, you know, a portion of the public slamming you really hard, um, a portion of the press slamming you really hard in public. And we're a small business. So like when 30% of your company leaves, it's a pretty damn big deal for us. Um, again, we survived and everything was fine. The customers were not affected at all. So that was really important. Um, but it was hard. I mean, you, you can't control it. You, you have to let it roll over you and you've got to keep your head about you. And uh, I heard from a number of CEOs, big companies, small companies who've been through something sort of similar, not necessarily this topic, but other topics. And, and they say, you know, right now is going to be the worst it's ever going to be. And time will roll. Time rolls on. Things will calm down. Um, you'll get your feet back under you. And um, people want to work here. You've got a great business. You're doing great things. Keep it up. And, you know, so that's how it goes. Uh, but it, it was very hard. Uh, I would say for a matter of about six weeks, it felt, it felt, uh, it, it was, you know, incredibly difficult um, time. Um, but like all things, everything must pass this past uh, and you move on and there's nothing else you can do. Um, I mean, you can linger on it for years. You're free to do that if you want. I mean, I'm not that kind of person who's going to linger on bad moments for years. Um, you got to move on. You got to find your happiness again. You've got to focus on things that, that, that you enjoy and uh, being bitter forever is just not a good formula for, I don't think for anybody, but that's up to different people. Yeah, that's, I, I, I'm not allowed into the story, so I'll not comment any further. Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so I'll just finish off with the last question. What do you think is the future of business and what difference will we see from what we are seeing today? The future of business probably looks a lot like the past of business. I think like um, business is business. Uh, people have to do jobs. I mean, of course, you're going to see more AI involved, I think, in a lot of different places uh, in different ways. And I think there's going to be significant job pressure put on certain industries. I think things like um, sales, customer service, um, these are going to be tough. I think there's going to be a lot of carnage, frankly, in, in those industries. Um, and um, that's going to be a big change. And I think there'll be a lot of it, either legal and accounting. I mean, there's it's 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 at all levels here. I think we're going to see a bit of a shakeup. But in the end, it's still the same thing, which is like companies have to figure out how to build a good product for customers. You have to make more money than they spend, um, have, to, have to explain what they're all about, to treat people well. All those things are always the fundamentals of business. At the end of the day, you build a business to serve customers. And those customers are probably still going to be humans. And so, you know, how you do it uh, is still all about the fundamentals. Communicate well, make something great, solve people's struggles or help people with their struggles, price it fairly, treat people well, don't have crazy policies that make it really hard for customers to leave, don't lock people, like all the stuff. You get still got to do all that stuff. So how, however you do it, okay, that probably that shell will change, but the core is is the same as it always will be, I believe. So, um, yeah. So the people with the strongest fundamentals will be the next Bezos or Jason Fried. Not me. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I don't know if you want to be me, but I, I'm not. I, I, I mean, a lot of people have strong fundamentals and they don't make it. So there's a lot of luck and a lot of timing involved with all of this stuff. A lot of things you don't control are involved so many things you don't control um and i think that's the other recognition people need to remember 
you might be good, you might be bad, whatever you are, like a lot of it has very little to do with you in the end. Um, and uh, uh, there's there's a lot we can take credit for that we don't deserve. And there's a lot we can blame that we should look at ourselves first. There's all these things. So, I, you know, um, but I think basically, fundamentally, you've just got to run a good business, which is about taking good care of customers and employees. That's, you got to do that. That's what it's all about. Um, and if you look at it as, well, business is, is, a, is, a, is a financial vehicle to achieve. Like, I think you're going to have a really hard time getting where you want to go because you're, you're, you're bypassing the thing that's going to help you get there, which is taking good care of customers and employees. So that's my sense. That's, I think, an incredible way to end. Yes. This is fun. For sure.